Best Book Bits podcast brings you Mark Devine, a Navy SEAL commander, a thought leader, innovator, best-selling author, yoga master, entrepreneur, change maker, and a self-described warrior monk. Mark, thank you for being on the show. Michael, thanks for having me. Nice. Now, your resume is out of this world. So the experiences you've done and the places you've been and the skills you've learned and the teachings you've, you've taught. Take us back to the day you were a Wall Street man before you got into martial arts. Is that correct? How did your story unfold from there? I was, my first career was on <clears throat> Wall Street, literally on Wall Street, the actual physical place. I wasn't in financial services per se, but I was working for a company called Coopers and Librand, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, doing first auditing and then moved into consulting. And during that time, I was also getting my MBA in finance at NYU Stern School of Business. So MBA, CPA, work experience at this big firm, that was the idea, right? That was the story that I sold myself on and I barreled into after graduating from college. And that made a lot of sense because I grew up in a business family. We have a traditional family business that's been around since like 1895. It's manufacturing, makes stuff, equipment for industry. And there was this story that we were business people and that I was ultimately going to come back to the family business. All my siblings are there right now to this day. And so it's expected and I was grooved to do that or groomed and grooved. So this opportunity to go to New York and work for PricewaterhouseCoopers and get my MBA and become a certified public accountant all fit that narrative, right? Is something that was good, right? There was a lot of kudos coming my way, both from my family and from culture and yeah, I was on the right path, in other words, right? There was no interest in the military at that time in my life. No, like, discussions about the SEALs or the Navy or anything, really. Like, we were not a military family. So that was, that was not on the table. Now, back to your question, now, what happened there? So I was very athletic. I still am to this day. Like, a part of my, I guess, the gift of this biological aspect of my being was to have this, this pretty... Um, high capacity for athletic abilities, for pain tolerance. That probably came from the conditioning of my father's abuse, but I certainly had a little bit of a pain tolerance. And, uh, and I got into endurance sports. I was a competitive swimmer and I was a competitive rower and a triathlete. And so all of that was easy to do in upstate New York and at college because it's a big part of the whole story, right? The whole college experience, right? You're, you can, if you're an athlete, you get a lot of opportunity to express that. And upstate New York, you're outside all the time. There's tons of land around me. So I got, I was always running and hiking and swimming and whatnot. But now all of a sudden I'm in Manhattan, the concrete jungle. And I'm putting a suit and tie on every day and stuck in a cubicle. And I looked at that and I said, you know what? This sucks. I'm going to, at least I'm not going to look like these people around me in five years, pasty white, puffy people. I'm going to maintain my athleticism. This is the first sign that I was, had a yogi in me, the yogi mindset that of training and practice can keep the body and mind as fit as a fiddle until you're ready to click off. And I've, to this day, I have people in my sphere that I have trained with or that I'm familiar with or connected with who are in their 80s and 90s and just really don't look much different than you and I, and they train every day. And that's what my early spirit was telling me do that. Just keep training every day. So I started running every morning after running, I would sit and, um, do some stretching. And then I would go to the gym at lunchtime and do a high intensity workout. This is before I knew what hit training was. All my friends would go have their high carb lunch and a beer and I would go to the gym and just 
bang out whatever I could, sweat like a monster for hours afterwards. And then this is getting back to the core of your question. Like, how did I get into the martial arts and what did, you know, what impact that had on me? I had this two hour block of time, Michael, after work, they would let us off at five o'clock roughly. And we were, had to be at night school, night classes down at NYU, which was down at the World Trade Center before it got mowed down. And we had to be down there by 7.30. So it was like two and a half hours. And again, all the peers who are in this, pro I was a pro cohort-based program. It wasn't just me doing this. I was with a bunch of other individuals who were working for other big eight accounting consulting firms and going to NYU with me. Most of them would go home and eat dinner and change and do some homework and make their way down to school. And I looked at that as a good block of training, another training block. So what can I do during this time? And I didn't want to go to the gym. I didn't have enough time to go rowing. I didn't really want to go for a run. I was stumped. What am I going to do here? So I was pondering that and walking home one day and I walked past a martial arts studio and I heard the shouting, I actually noticed the shouting coming from the second floor. And I was like, oh, sack screams coming out of there first. I'm like, what's going on? Do I need to go render assistance? Then I'm like, oh, wow, look at that. World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I went up and checked it out. And I didn't know anything about the martial arts. I'm from a town in upstate New York with 275 people in it. <laughs> it's pretty small. And in, it was outside of Utica. We didn't have any real martial arts, at least that I was aware of at the time. It was 1985. So I go up and check this out. And there in the middle of the floor is this classic, just like right out of the movies, this five foot six Japanese guy who's just like insanely intense, but uh, also very light and playful and spontaneous and just revered by his students. And he was leading a black belt class. And that was Tadashi Nakamura who became, I signed up the next day and he became my mentor and my teacher. And so I started training the martial arts with him. But after about a couple months, I stayed to watch the black belt class again, which is on Thursday night. And after the black belt class, they turned the lights down and they're like ushering everyone out. And I, um, I kind of hung around and I saw some senior students bringing some wooden benches out of a corner and kind of setting them up and lighting a candle. I said, what's going on here? And the person I asked said, well, that's the Zen class. I said, what is Zen? And they said, well, go to the library tomorrow and get the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's by a guy named Suzuki and you'll learn about Zen. So I did that and I just was transfixed by this book. What is this, right? Here I am, a kid from upstate New York, right? With no, no experience or evidence and there, that there's anything else going on beyond what was put right in front of me with the church and with my family and with my school. And now I'm being exposed to this entire Eastern tradition of developing the mind, body, and spirit and of, of achieving or attaining different states of being that were per their descriptions, very different than anything I understood or could explain. Yeah. And I think just to jump in really quickly, that's the importance of a beginner's mindset. And before a beginner's mindset is not even having a mindset. So you going into those experiences open and receptive to the martial arts and then Zen. Fascinating how if you didn't walk past that martial arts studio, how your life would have unfolded differently as well. So those. Oh, it would have been completely different, Michael. Yeah. M meditation completely and utterly changed my sense of self, my self-concept, what it was that I believed that I was as a human being, and also what I believed I was put on this planet for, or my purpose. I could fill up 20 books with just each 
idea or each major kind of bucket of knowledge or systemic thinking that happened or changed when I sat on that meditation bench over that four year period. You've done a good job so far. You've, how many books have you published? So, how many books have you published so far? <laughs> I'm working on my, I'm working on my six. And that's the funny thing because words are just so limiting. Try to relate things that are so extraordinarily either complex or simple on the other hand. Yeah. How did you then go from working at Wall Street to then joining Buds and becoming ranked number one out of the class of 171? How does someone go from that meditation to the extremes of pushing your body to the limits? The meditation had everything to do with it. Like you just alluded to, if I hadn't found Nakamura in meditation, or even if I had just found a martial art that we weren't doing meditation, it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have become a Navy SEAL because the profound shifts happened when I was sitting on that meditation bench. And usually immediately after, within the first hour or two. But it wasn't any one thing. There wasn't one moment where I suddenly had an explosion or an epiphany or some radical non-dual experience. I had a, a steadily progressive experience of deepening my powers of concentration to where then I could really radically concentrate just on my breathing and to the exclusion of pretty much any other thought. And then without really any coaching or prodding by Mr. Nakamura, I had these moments where I would just kind of forget what I was doing and drop, drop into the void, right? Drop into just pure perception. I was still there but there was no mark there. It was just pure non-dual subjectivity. Witnessing, it's a word I use for it, that's used frequently for that idea, that notion of just pure awareness, just sitting there and just witnessing what's going on as if there's a mark as an object, not the subject. And whenever, whenever that happened, and I came back into identifying as Mark afterwards, waking up out of that non-dual state or coming back, maybe going back into the dream state, actually, if you want to use the right language of this perceived reality that we live in, I would always bring back like a little gem of information, of insight or something of direct perception of knowing something that I didn't know before. And it was always generally about my life or about life. And so what I kept coming back with when I would, and this has happened over the course of two, two plus years, I kept getting the sensation that I was a warrior and that I was meant to be a warrior in this lifetime. And yet here I was working on becoming a CPA and an MBA. So I started a journaling practice again. This is 1987 now ish and 1987, no, we had no internet. No one was talking about journaling and meditating and visualizing. And here I was doing it. I was doing all three of those things, meditating every single day. I added it to my morning practice. After my run, I would meditate, breathe, I'd do box breathing, which I practice that I just coddled together. And I later found through yoga that I was, it's just a very simple controlled breathing practice in pranayama. And then I would meditate, what I'd learned through Zen. And then after I'd meditate, I would, I would journal, right? And I started asking questions when I journaled. If I'm supposed to be a warrior, how am I supposed to be a warrior? And can I be a warrior as a CPA or as a business person? Is a Wall Street trader a warrior? Right? And I would reflect on that. I'm like, oh no. A warrior is someone who's, in my definition at the time, 
was someone who was really putting, willing to put themselves at risk to do something worthy. It was someone who was willing to do the right thing in spite of the consequences. It was someone who put others before self. It was someone who was in radical service to either something much bigger. In the case, early days for me, it was country. Later on, it was, it's humanity. It's where it is now. And so I asked those questions and then I would take those questions and some of the answers I would get in journaling, which is using my rational, my thinking mind. And I would take them back to the meditation bench, right? And I would concentrate and then drop off and I'd drop off of that question in my mind. And I would come back with more information or more certainty or more clarity. And so all of this is happening and I still wasn't getting any answers, Michael, that said, okay, yeah, Mark, you're supposed to be a Navy SEAL and you're supposed to go there in November of 1989. It just didn't work that way. When you're tapping into your inner guide, your, your, inter, your, in, your inner guru, so to speak, <laughs> the term sad guru is, actually means your inner guru. When you tap into that and you start to get these experiences that I'm talking about and you're looking for like a direction in life, you're not it'd be folly to look or to expect that you're going to get an answer that has anything to do with something material or some physical goal or objective, like a job or an attainment. Like I didn't get anything that said, you're going to go be a Navy SEAL Admiral or commander. Now it was all about beingness, the essential nature of your being, the way you're supposed to be in this human form in this lifetime. So for me, that was to initially, it was to be a warrior and then a warrior leader and then a warrior teacher and warrior monk, all of those. The warrior, the thing part of it that is more of how you show up in the world, first started as a warrior and then it started to change and now it's a teacher and, but the warrior is still there. It's just taking the back seat. So those are my, my core archetypal energies and these things get fleshed out in things like the Enneagram and Jungian therapy. They're archetypal energies that even cultures can have, but every human being has it, but it's also, it's something you can tap into if you have, if you lack clarity of what that is, meditation will bring it to the surface, so to speak. And that's what happened to me. One of the biggest takeaways I got from that, I've been journaling for 15 years myself. I write two pages a day, 700 and something pages a year. And every night I go back on the previous year and two years up to about five years. And I just reflect on the previous days because I realized most of the things I was doing didn't matter. So I want to make sure that the things I'm doing tomorrow matter in five years time. So I'm not wasting my time. So optimizing my time. But the thing you said, which was deliberate question, what I wrote down was deliberate questioning of the subconscious of your inner guru. So a lot of people journal and reflect on the day, but you actually take it a step further by then saying, okay, let's go inward and let's ask the question to my subconscious. You're literally putting it on the meditation table. I've never heard that word before. Amazing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So it's the next level of journaling. Don't just write things down and reflect on the day, but actually go deeper on as well. Yeah, journaling is a fantastic process. Stream of conscious, you can get things out, but also um, I think one of the most powerful, and I love your practice, what you talked about, that recapitulation. This is what one of the things I teach for an evening ritual is to go back and recapitulate. You can recapitulate your day. And I love this idea of recapitulating your week, month, or year, because you're right. Generally, human beings have a tendency to radically downplay the progress, the successes, the cool things that happen and overplay the negative and the disasters, the things that they don't have or the gaps. And so that keeps them in a perpetual state of wanting when they actually have already 
considerable progress toward whatever it is that their goal is. So you lack contentment. And so contentment is a master skill. And we can develop contentment by looking back and recognizing how far we've come. And also by recognizing that wherever we are today is exactly where we need to be because that's exactly where we are. And to be okay with that. It's not always craving and grasping to be somewhere else or someone else. And just want to expand on how I do it because people think it's it's crazy and it might sound like a lot, but it's not. So today is the 21st of February. I'll just go back for two seconds and read 21st of February, 2022, 21st of February, 2021. So these are like one, two pages. So it might take me five, 10 minutes. And then I take it a step further because I put the photos on my phone from February in a little folder from like last year, two years up to five years. And I can reflect on the photos as well. But what in the photos is what you don't see in the journal is growth. So growth of my children, the changes, business partners, businesses, whatever it was. And you can see how small my thinking was. And it's just very interesting. When you reflect on yourself, it's, there's this power. It's this, it's, there's an underlying power because of your knowingness of your beingness and where you're at and your journey is very powerful. So for anyone that doesn't do it, it's like you're missing out. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but second best time is today. We're so taught in the Western world to try to force things to happen. We believe that we are the lever, that we're the cause, that we're the doer. What I've learned, and especially through this recapitulation practice and, and, being, and this idea of contentment, is that if you can connect in with that aspect of being, if you bring good questions to your meditation and contemplation, and then just sit in a state of open receptiveness and allowing things to happen, allow the thoughts to come to you, allow the information to show itself, to reveal itself. And this is how I became a Navy SEAL. Like I was having these moments where I like, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was a warrior. I was meant to be a warrior. I had also a sense that I was barreling down the wrong path with my, with my professional career, but I didn't have a solid answer as to what was to replace it. I did start a practice I called trying on the uniform where I would visualize myself doing different things that I thought were warrior-like. So one of them was flying jets. I visualized myself flying jets for the Air Force and the Marine Corps. And uh, I did that for a while. And at first it, it seemed exciting. And then after doing it for a few days, or maybe a week or so like that with the intention, saying, okay, what if this is it? Let me act as if this is it. Let me visualize myself doing this as if it's it. I started to get bored. I'm like, this is actually not that exciting to me. Just, just turning knobs. And yes, it's exciting to go fast, but it's not, doesn't have the variety and the adventure. And I'm not using my body the way I feel like I am using my body. So then I thought, what if I was a roughneck on an oil rig? That could be warrior-like and cool. And so I envisioned myself what that would be like. Again, I didn't really have a lot of information, but I could imagine what that would be like. I didn't have Top Gun and I didn't have, you know, the movies that we have today. So it's a lot easier to do that today because you can actually, you can actually talk to an astronaut even, or get a sense of what that's like. So I, I did that and I was like, you know what, this sounds pretty gritty. It might be cool for a month, but again, I can't see, possibly see doing this stuck on a rig day after day for years. So I went, as I was going through this process, this, I had the knowingness that I was to be a warrior. I was trying to, I was putting on uniform and visualizing different ways to be a warrior. And then the universe stepped in to give me a hand. This is synchronicity, right? The idea of synchronicity is essentially that instead of looking at me as a separate doer, separate from anyone else, we are, we are actually all one stream of consciousness flowing through these body mind beings, these instruments. And 
when you align and tune in with that and you're in tune with what the body being is supposed to be doing, then you are presented with that the information. You just got to pay attention, right? The way that happened to me, the way the information was presented to me, that was going to be the right information for this being in this instant of being a human. I was walking, it was very similar to how I found karate. I was walking home from work, pondering these weighty things. And I walked past a Navy recruiting office and there was a poster facing the street. And it said, be someone special across the top. And it had Navy SEALs don't cool shit. It didn't say anything about the Navy SEALs. This is 1987 and the SEALs were a secret organization. They wish they still were to this day, but the cat is out of the bag. About 800 people in the organization. And I just, but I stopped and looked at this poster and I was like, holy shit, there's a guy free falling and a little mini submarine and a sniper and a spotter and a hide site. You can barely see him. And it was just wickedly cool. I was like that right there. That's it. And I went the next day and I said, what was on that poster? What are they? What is that? And they're like, oh yeah, you don't want to know about those guys. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> what are they? And they said, oh, they're called the Navy SEALs, Sea Air Land teams. And they're very, they're just badasses. But I said, well, that's, I'm interested in that. And I said, I'm also, when I was talking to the enlisted recruiter, I said, I'm also going to have my MBA pretty soon. So I probably, if I do that, you know, do they take officers? And they said, very few, but some, and by, you don't want to be an officer. <laughs> and they gave me all the reasons I shouldn't be an officer. So I said, well, I think I'll talk to an officer recruiter anyway. So I did. And met one a week later named Nick and um, he was very similar. He was a great guy. He's, geez, Mark, I have to research this. I'm not even sure how guys get into the SEALs. I do think there is a program for someone like you, but they only take one person a year, maybe two. Because most of the officers would come out of the Naval Academy or the Reserve Officer Training Corps and they take about 20, only 20 a year total in the front end, and they maybe get 10 of them into the seals at the end of the year. Cause most of them half, about half the officers quit buds and about 85% of all the other enlisted don't make it through buds either. The seal training. So I said, well, I want to go for that. That's what I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. I said, let's figure out how to put a package in for that I shifted. I, he said, okay. And I shifted my training just slightly. I didn't do anything different physically, except that I, I did actually started to lift weights as I wasn't lifting weights besides my high intensity stuff. So I got to be more deliberate. I added some strength training. I wanted to put some beef on, but the other thing that I added to my training was in my morning meditation at the end of it, I added a visualization session where I visualized myself going through seal training and graduating. And I used as a basis for that imagery work, the video called be someone special. And it had imagery of all the Navy seal training it was classic. So I watched that about 20 times. And then I inserted myself into that video and I visualize it every single morning. Now, funny, like footnote to this story is the power of visualization. I'm sure you were aware, maybe you talked about is that practice was profound. I didn't even know it. I was just working off of a hunch based upon an experience I had with my swim coach who taught me how to visualize my event at Colgate, the 200 meter breaststroke. And I had a pretty profound experience with that. And so I was like, I bet you this would work. So I visualized myself just crushing everything I could think of at buds and believing that I was worthy of it. And, and I did it every day for about nine months. And this is while I was waiting to hear from Nick and the Navy. And he's telling me, don't get my hopes up. I've got statistically a better chance of becoming an astronaut than a Navy SEAL from the civilian world, 25, 26. 
And I said, just keep pushing them, pushing the package, keep supporting me. And nine months of that visualization practice, I had this overwhelming sense of certainty wash over me that I was going to be a Navy SEAL. I was already a Navy SEAL. I just needed to let time catch up. And literally in the next few days, Nick called me and said, holy shit, Mark, congratulations. You got one of the two slots to go to SEAL training after officer candidate school. And I smiled and I said, thank you. <laughs> I already knew it had happened. I call that winning in your mind before you step foot in the battlefield. And that was from a classic Sun Tzu quote, the art of war author. He said, victorious leaders win in their mind before they go to battle, whereas others go to battle hoping to win. And it means to be, have that absolute sense of certainty about what the outcome is going to be because you see it in your mind and you see it at a level that is so clear and believe it that you know it's going to be true. And what's happening here now, now I recognize is just like a past event you have a memory of, right? So you believe that this thing happened to you because it did in a different time and you have this memory. Now, if it was something really bad, a lot of times like traumatic, a lot of times we will go back and we reinforce that memory by re replaying it in our mind and replaying how it hurt us and the victimization and even talk therapy can enhance the image through constant repetition, just scraping your emotional life over the coals of that past trauma. And you're actually feeding it. You're feeding the energy of that memory. So, you know, what you give energy to will persist and grow in nature. So you can use this to your advantage by in a retroactive sense, those trauma based things, you've stopped feeding them energy and you can recontextualize what happened and find something positive and then feed the positive energy of that, like the strength that it gave you or the awareness or the sensitivity. And there's always a flip side to the negative. Everything has a positive side and a negative side. So you focus on the positive and you energize the positive and you de-energize the negative. And that has an incredibly powerful effect for emotional healing of trauma. But in a future state, what you can do is you can create an image of a future desired state. And as long as it's alignment with, it's aligned with that purpose or that calling that, that you've surfaced through your meditation or your contemplation practice, it's got to be an alignment and it's not a doing thing. It's a becoming thing. So I was visualizing becoming the man worthy of just crushing buds. I wasn't visualizing so, so much on the accomplishment, the achievement, the doing part. And what I was doing is I'm creating a future memory. And then I'm adding energy to that memory as if it had happened already. And the more I feed that future memory as if it's happened, the more it creates like this gravitational pull, this gravitational field in like the matrix of the world where it starts to create this ripple effect where everything starts to line up to support the achievement or the accomplishment that you already created in your mind, the winning in your mind before stepping foot in the battlefield. So I did that. And Sure as shit. I got the orders to go to Buds in November of 1989. I got my MBA CPA, tested for my first degree black belt. All of that happened in November. And I also left New York, left my job, <laughs> left the dojo and went to officer Canada school. And then I went to Buds, basic underwater demolition seal training with class 170 in April of the next year, 1990. In that class, I graduated 185 of us standing there that first day. And Six months later, there were 19 of us left and I was number one graduate and my entire small boat crew of six others was graduated with me because I taught them a lot of these skills. I taught them box breathing. I taught them visualization. I taught them positive self-talk and, and we just dominated. It was cool. 
I think you answered why you were number one in, in, in that. So thank you for expanding on that because it's not you outworked people. You actually went in there. They weren't sure. They didn't realize you were the warrior monk. And then you were uncovering that yourself and teaching others. So you are going in there as a teacher, not just as a student as well. One story you said in the book and you didn't finish it. And I want to know the answer. They said, jump in the pool and swim to the other edge, which was 50 meters underwater, fully clothed. And you said, okay. And you jumped in, you swam to the other edge. You did a bit of a dive. You kicked back and went halfway. So you did about 75 meters. And then you got in trouble and they sent you to the office or wherever it was. Well, did you end up getting in trouble? What was that story? You said it in the book, but you didn't tell the finish. Now the story actually, the story, I didn't get in trouble. I actually, so that story was, I was originally had orders, right? Literally when you're ordered, you do it right. I had orders to go to class 171 and I showed up in, as I said, I showed up in Coronado in April after officer kinder school and, and class 171 wasn't going to start up for eight weeks, another two months. And so they had some, back then they had something called fourth phase. There's three phases of buds, first, second, third phase. And then this fourth phase is kind of like the holding tank for guys waiting to class up in the next class. And they trained here and there. They did training. They did obstacle course. They did running. They did basic training, but I was ready to go. I thought I was going to go and I was ready to go. And so I heard there was a class starting on Monday. I, this is a Friday that I got there. And was, class 170 was going to start on Monday. And I thought, geez, I want to be in that class. So I asked a couple people, they said, oh, I got orders to 171, but I want to start up with 170. They said, that's stupid. You got orders. You follow your orders. <laughs> I said, maybe. Is there anyone I can talk to about this? They're not used to having MBA CPAs, you know, show up <laughs> at SEAL training. Most of them are like seven, 18 year old kids, still badasses, but young, not willing, not usually already questioning authority. Someone said, Lieutenant Rick May is in charge of fourth phase and he's going to be the one who decides who starts on Monday and who doesn't. He's down in the pool or combat training tank, which is the SEAL speak for maybe SEAL pool. So I jog on over to the combat training tank in my boots and utes and my helmet. You've seen the little helmets that SEAL trainees wear. And there I open, I go in there and 184 guys lined up in their UDT shorts along the side and they were doing crossovers, which is swimming crossovers, 50 meters. And, uh, and they parted and on the high diving board was this bronze, blue eyed, blonde hair, Adonis guy, six foot three. And his name was Lieutenant Rick May. And Lieutenant May saw me come in my uniform, saw my ensign bars and was like, hello, enzyme. How can we help you? And everyone's watching me like, what is this guy? And I said, Lieutenant Maser, I'm Ensign Divine. I have orders to class 171, but I want to class up with 170 on Monday. And he just kind of looked at me. He goes, that's unusual. He goes, swim 50 meters underwater for us. And I know we'll chat further. So I started to take my boots off. He goes, no, leave everything on except for your helmet. So I put my helmet down, took a couple deep breaths and dove into the water and started doing my underwater kick out. And like, I'm, if you imagine swimming with combat boots on, it's pretty rough. I felt like there were anchors, right? And so I had to really use my, my pull out, my pull, but I was a competitive swimmer and I happened to be a breaststroker. So this wasn't unachievable for me. So I swam, touched the other side of 25, swam back and I made it right. So I, I didn't actually fail. So I hit the wall, I climbed out. And May looked at me, he said, come see me in my office in an hour. So I went and saw him and he said, well, that was impressive. And I can tell you really want this. So I'm going to 
let you start up on Monday, class 170. <laughs> so that was pretty cool, right? It's like, I wasn't going to take no for an answer. Obviously, if you finally said no, but most people wouldn't have even gone down that road. And again, I don't even know why I did that. That was just, again, listening to my intuition, listening to the inner voice that said, do this, right? Go now. It wasn't something that I'd rationally thought about. It's just something that just, there was the only thing that I could have done was just not do it to block myself. And again, that was one of the most profound, these things in my life where I just did something spontaneously and didn't question it. And it turned out to be right. I realized that life is like that. We think that we're making these decisions. And the reality is this consciousness is streaming through us and it's hitting the conditioning of your body mind. And then that shows up as, and then immediately slips into memory. And we think that we're, we're the, genius that's figuring all this shit out. The, all you can do is block yourself from your awesomeness, right? In life. So that's to me what, what personal growth or spiritual development is to get out, learning to get the heck out of your own way. One thing we'll finish off with the seals and we'll nip it in the bud. No pun intended. I believe from an outsider's perspective, not a military person that the whole idea of seal training or any training it's you're dividing people from words and actions 185 people start 19 finish you become number one the whole process is to divide people that say they want it in the end that actually do the actions that actually not just want it but do the actions required and do whatever they're willing to sacrifice to get the job done so it's just a divider of you say you want it but these are the people who have actually done it. So words and actions. So that's my outsider's perspective on life as well. Stop talking about doing things and start doing things. And then once you've done stuff, you can talk about what you've done, but you can't talk about what you're going to do. You can only talk about what you've done. That's my analogy of the whole spectrum of that. I think you're right. But, and so what you're pointing to though, is a requirement to be very thoughtful and careful with what you say you're going to do. Because there are 170 some odd people or 60 some odd people who said they were gonna become, or said they were gonna try to become Navy SEALs. Whereas I said that I was a Navy SEAL. And it's very different. And so that means a lot of those people shouldn't even be there. They have a poor self-assessment of what they're meant to be doing and why they're doing it and also their capabilities. Absolutely. One, one, obviously Navy SEAL that I actually seen a couple of weeks ago in person at a live event, probably know his name, David Goggins, obviously very famous now. And what do you know about David and what's the, have you met him before? What's the, obviously you did buds in the eighties. What's, has it changed or what's different? Yeah. 19, no, I did buds in 1990. He came by later than me. Buds hasn't changed. Buds is, buds is buds. It's gotten a little bit more sophisticated, a little safer than when I went through it's still brutal and they still have the same 85% fail rate. David Goggins is, he's a unique individual, just like a lot of, not all, there are some Navy SEALs I call the 10% 10, 10 rule. They kind of slip through the cracks. And, but for the most part, there's some extraordinary individuals and plenty who have the same level of fitness as Goggins just don't, are not posting videos every day and making a life out of it or a career out of it. And I've got friends who've just done extraordinary things that just literally blow your mind. It's crazy. Goggins is a, he's entertaining, right? Just like Jocko, those guys are phenomenally entertained. Their presence and ability to communicate is extraordinary. And they've done, they do extraordinary things. Most of Goggins' extraordinary stuff is 
his story about getting through training and then what he's done after the SEALs, he wasn't, there was nothing extraordinary about his Navy SEAL career. And most SEALs know that he just really didn't do much. And he got out and capitalized on it, which is fine, right? He's a badass in that regard. But Jocko, like Jocko's different. And Jocko was a fucking warrior. And he was a phenomenal leader and he made an impact. His team made an impact in Ramadi and whatnot. So they're very different, but they both are big personalities and they, their presence is amazing. They're very funny and motivating, right? So they got big followings. Back to Goggins. I met Goggins. I've interviewed him. There's something about people like that who are always chasing hard and more. And they're doing it because of the child, the trauma of their childhood. They think that is going to heal them from their trauma or they're doing it thinking that their trauma made them strong enough to do this. The reality is that's fine up to a point, but it, there's going to need to be some reckoning, right? Some way to balance out all that energy, right? The yin and the yang have to be in balance, the hard and the soft. And he doesn't have an off switch. He doesn't have a down switch. And so I, I worry about him in that regard. I feel like if you were to do all that and you were getting therapy, deep therapy to do the heal from the traumas, that's great. And you might still do that stuff, but there's going to be a time where you stop doing it. Your ego just doesn't need to be known as the hardest man on earth. Well said, well said. With your career, so after Bud's active duty for nine years and in reserve for 11 as well, retiring of the rank of commander in, in 2011, we don't have to touch on that because we've gone on so much as well, but is there anything you want to touch on there before you start your entrepreneurial career as well and doing some amazing stuff with uh, SealFit and things like that? I was very blessed to be able to get into business as a reserve SEAL. The reason I became a reservist is because I got married in 94, early in 95, and I was in Hawaii and at SDV, SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team, that submersible unit. Some cool little submarine stuff we did. You know, I just don't think my new wife and I really knew what the impact of being a SEAL, being a married SEAL was going to be, especially on her. For me, it was like always adventurous from one adventure to another adventure. I didn't like leaving her, but I loved being a SEAL. And so on her side was she gave up her career. She was a therapist, private practice a therapist. She had two young daughters or daughters who are now getting older. And so they were out of the house at 15. One of them bailed on school already and got her GED and the other one's a little bit older. So they stayed home in Coronado because they were in school and they didn't want to, they didn't want to come to Hawaii. And so she gave up her practice and we moved to Hawaii. And then guess what? I'm gone. I'm gone the whole time. Just back and forth a few times, a few days here and a few days there. And after a year of that, SEALs are basically gone for 11 months. Even when they're technically home and not deployed, they're gone training, especially in Coronado or Little Creek, Virginia, where the SEAL bases are. There's, you can't really do much training in those towns. So you've got to go on a travel trip to, to do your training, even in the country. Anyway, so 11 months out of the year, and she just came to me one day in tears. She says, I can't do this. And it's got come to Jesus talk to me. So I said, okay, uh, I got to make a choice. So I, I left the Navy active duty, but Decided to stay in the reserves. And that was cool because I got to do a lot of really cool things. I even went to combat as a reserve lieutenant commander in 2004. I went to Iraq. But I, my reserve time, except for the two years that I was mobilized for a whole year, I, was, I would do like 45 to 60 days a year. The rest of the time I could be in business. And I wanted to bring some of these skills that were so effective for me getting through SEAL training and being a leader in the SEALs. I wanted to teach other special operators these skills. So I launched this company called SEAL Fit and began to teach them 
these skills, these meditation, concentration, visualization, how to manage your mind and emotions and how to be an incredible team player. And so with SEAL Fit, it was amazing. We started training SEAL candidates first and then got into other special forces units and then civilians. And now we even do corporations. But our SEAL trainees, the ones that we train in these principles, 90% of them get through Navy SEAL training, which is incredible. So we've trained several hundred Navy SEALs in our system. And now BUDS, the SEAL training center themselves, have implemented some of the techniques that I innovated or evolved. And so that's really cool to be able to see this kind of come full circle. And we still run these programs at Seal Fit and, and uh, try to make people stronger in body, mind, and spirit. And we run uh, more integrative, personal, and holistic development programs through the brand of Unbeatable. And also, we have a gear line called Brute Force, which is unstable load sandbags and weight vests and kettlebells and stuff like that for austere training. Now, one of you, we haven't even deep dive into any of the books, and I think we're going to run out of time, but I know you've got five books out there, writing, writing another one at the moment, and so much content. I think I had 87 pages of notes here. We're on page two right now. True story. One of the one of your goals is to reach 100 million people, well, so sorry, inspire and uh, train 100 million people by 2045. How do you unpack that? It's not something that I can say that I'm looking at 100 million customers or clients. I'm talking about bringing a hundred million people into a path of wholeness or to, into a self-determination, self-determining evolutionary process to wholeness, right? Path of integration. What I mean by that is someone taking responsibility for growing physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually. We call those the five mountains. So I can do that through my books, through my podcast, Mark Divine Show, through all my 400 or 500 certified coaches doing their work through coaches that I have trained, who've written books, who have started businesses through, there's a number of academic institutions that have used my work for curriculum, especially the way the seal and I'm doing So it's going to be like all these different touch points. And then those touch points, training another generation of teachers who then have all these different touch points. So again, it doesn't, you do the math that you can hit big numbers fairly quickly. Yes. And I'm, and I gave this a 20 year timeline. So. No, perfect. Yeah. One of my, I've got a goal to educate a billion people on the planet for free. I think I'm at 10 million right now. And that's just on online question. I'm getting into the gym business and I had a business meeting last night with some business partners and talking about Les, the reformer Pilates. We've got yoga in there as well. Les Mill training. Can't you have seal fit as a small gym or a program? Is something we want to look at. I, Cause that could be cool. That would be global. That would be global. Yeah. I just need to figure out that business model. I tried to do a licensing model and the certified coaches, I realized that they really need to be seals, right? You need to have seal or special operators as the head instructors per se for the program to have the authenticity that you want it to have. So that is the limiting factor, but I'm looking at that business model, creating that model for transitioning Naval Special Warfare. I would allow other special ops to do it as well. So you create a business model that's exciting where they can go in and be, run their own seal fit training center location. 
which would have gear, would have training models, would have events. And I think that'd be huge. I've, got, I've answered it. So you would have like 45 hard and people doing, oh, I'm doing the 45, 75 hard or something like that. So, okay. That's like boot camp. Yeah. You would have seal fit hard and seal fit light. That's a great idea. So seal fit light would just be like really light for the up and comers, but I would split it into light and hard. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to help me with that one, just let me know. <laughs> that is a great idea. Yeah. And culture needs, and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because, you know, especially the last few years in the pandemic, we're just way out of whack. There's so many mental health problems and people are so unhealthy and unfit and they're just outsourcing so much of their life to government, right? Or to corporations and they don't realize it, right? It's just being nipped and tucked until their freedom is going to be eventually gone. And so instead of fighting that, the way you find freedom is by claiming it back in your own life, right? And you do that by being physically healthy, mentally healthy, and spiritually healthy. And then you don't need pharmacological interventions, right? You start eating really well so that the people selling junk food start getting less and less of our business. You start making better decisions about your life. And still obviously have to live within the constructs of the social structures that arose because of the collective mindset of our world and our generations, but you can find autonomy and freedom by first finding it within yourself. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's what Gandhi said. Yeah, correct. Yeah, the old saying, make your bed in the morning. There's a whole book about that. Get your house in order. We've all heard these things before, but it's one of the things he said earlier, which it was the power of visualization. The difference is, are you directing your life or is someone else directing your life for you as well? It all comes down to the intention and just, yeah, you're either a warrior monk or you're not. It's as simple as that. But Mark, I want to say thank you for being a guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. Where can people find you socially? Where can they buy your books? Check out your programs. Uh, books are all available at Amazon. Just search for Mark Divine or Unveiled Mind or The Way of the Seal, <laughs> Staring on the Wolf. Um, also, my personal website, markdivine.com, D-I-V-I-N-E, has information. It's got my blog. It's got You can sign up for my weekly newsletter called Divine Inspiration. It comes out every Tuesday. It's a great place to go. And if you're interested in the type of training we're talking about, sealfit.com, We'll have probably the best up-to-date information to go there and to learn about some of the programs that we're rolling out. And the podcast as well, the Mark Devine Show too? Mark Devine, that's thank you for reminding me of that. The Mark Devine Show, right, is on Apple or wherever you listen, Spotify. And we've been, we're in our eighth, ninth season now, ninth season. Yeah, amazing guest. You're up to, I think, 351 episodes or somewhere up there or more. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, somewhere in the mid 300s and I have some incredible conversations and some solo casts where I just riff on things that are interesting to me. And That's one thing that I need to do solo cast. I haven't done that yet. It's just a bit strange for me, but I think I'll, I think I'll do that. No, cool. People love it. I need to do more of them. I'm going to be doing less of the interview style, promoting someone else's book and more of the more deep conversations in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, great. Yeah. To my audience, please go out and check out Mark's stuff you've yeah you've done a, a ton of work such a, a massive life resume through there as well keep producing content keep doing that and so yeah I'll do what I can to promote you to my audience but yeah thank you for coming on and it's really good to speak to a warrior monk someone who's done some hard shit but actually gone very deep on the internal stuff as well so that's a it's a great quality mark so I just want to congratulate you on that um 
enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for being a guest on the best book fit podcast and we'll speak soon okay thank you michael appreciate it